Um, yeah, my name is Ben. For those who I don't know, please come and say hi afterwards. Um, most of you know I've got two daughters. My eldest is Marley and my youngest is Willa. Uh, my oldest is 10. And she's been reading through the Action Bible. So I don't most some of you who have young kids would know what that is. It's a very cool Bible, pretty heavy, good one to clock over someone's head, actually. Um, but it's a comic strip Bible from beginning to end. And she's been... She's been reading through it the last six months or so. Every now and then, I've been reading with my youngest daughter, Willa, most of the time. And every now and then, I'll just pop my head in to, to Marley uh, at bedtime and say, hey, hon, how you going? You know, have you got any questions? Uh, it's pretty heavy stories in the Bible, right? So, you know, I'm just checking up with her. Um, but she's been cool. And about three weeks ago, I did this. I popped my head in and said, hey, honey, how you going with the Bible? Like, if you, you know, let us know if you've got any questions. And she said, actually, Dad, uh, there's a story here that I just don't understand. Can you explain it to me? <laughs> Does anyone want to guess what that story was? <laughs> the Canaanite woman story. And the funny thing is, it's the, out of the whole Bible, that's the one story, the only time she's ever asked. And about five days before that, I got sent this passage from Dave saying, hey, are you interested in preaching from this passage? And I'd read through it, and I'm like, I sort of thought, oh, I'll just preach on the end, the tail end of the passage and leave this story alone because this story of the Canaanite woman really, I find it hard to fit into how I frame Jesus. It doesn't fit into my framework of understanding. Um, and I've sort of always just sort of left it as it is. You know, Dave last week preached um, and he said, we're not interested in religion, we are interested in what Jesus says. We need to remove the mess and listen to Jesus. But what if what Jesus says causes us discomfort? What if what Jesus says offends us? What if it spikes our sense of injustice? I read an extreme example of this a couple of weeks ago. An author um, who wrote a book and, and she, she speaks about this Canaanite woman's story. She says, The Canaanite is an aggressive single parent who here defies cultural taboos and acts to free Jesus from his sexism and racism by catching him in a bad mood, besting him in an argument, and herself becoming the vehicle of his liberation and the deliverance of her daughter. Pretty extreme interpretation. Not the one we agree with here, just to make it clear, but it's a quote. So this interpretation makes the Canaanite woman the saviour who rescues Jesus from his narrow-mindedness. But sometimes, this is an extreme example, but sometimes we tend to frame Jesus through our own lens, through our lens of culture, through the lens of our political ideas, through the lens of our attitudes or experiences. In this case, it's political and societal ideas. The problem is that God's ways are different from our ways. We find his ways in the Bible. We find his perspective, the way he sees things, the way he sees people, we find it in the Bible. So the Sava want to look at this story of the Canaanite woman and allow our understanding of Jesus to expand, to reframe Jesus in context of God's bigger plan by looking at who Christ is. I'm just going to pray. Father God, we just invite your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to you, God. We don't want to shut away parts of the Bible, uh, sort of leave them alone because they're too hard for us to, to get or, or we can't put it into our framework of you, Jesus. We want to see what you have to say to us through this, God. Speak to us, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. So to recap, 
Um, we, we've, I just want to basically set the scene up to this story. So I'm going to really briefly go through from chapter 14. So excuse me while I speak really quickly. Um, so John the Baptist was beheaded. And Jesus, obviously grieving, tries to withdraw by, po- by boat for some privacy. My mouth always goes dry when I'm preaching. I'm, I don't know why. I'm not even nervous. Um, I am a bit. So basically, Jesus tries to withdraw um, by boat for some privacy. He's grieving. The crowds find him. He has compassion on them and he heals their sick. And then he goes and proceeds to feed, miraculously feed about between 5,000 and 10,000 people, minimum 5,000 people. That's thousands, huge crowd. He feeds them with loaves of bread and some fish. Uh, It starts to get dark. The disciples tell Jesus to send them all away, but he instead feeds them. Um, But he finally finds some solitude on a mountainside where he prays and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat and he decides just to go walking on the Sea of Galilee when it's pretty crazy waves and he walks out Peter obviously sees him Peter steps out of the boat walks to almost gets to Jesus gets further than I would have gotten <laughs> Jesus like grabs him he says why do you doubt your little faith maybe it had something to do with him being walking on water um, pretty crazy then if walking on the water wasn't enough he lands at Gennesaret people recognize him another huge crowd gathers and people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. And Luke writes actually about this, and it, it connects to our story. He says, Jesus' disciples, along with a vast multitude from all over Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, so from where this woman was from, they came to hear Jesus and be healed of their diseases. Those who suffered from unclean spirits were cured, and the whole crowd was just trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Truly you are the Son of God. Power is just coming out from Jesus. Then we go to chapter 15, as, as we heard last week from Dave. It was a great message. If you didn't hear it, jump online. It's, um, he talks, chapter 15 begins with the heavyweights come from Jerusalem, the Pharisees, and they try, they try and get Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus, and they try and sort of catch him out um, by blaming his disciples for, for being unclean and breaking the traditions, not washing their hands before they eat bread. He turns it around, he trumps their argument, he calls them hypocrites. And he actually explains that to the people, um, see the Pharisees actually believe that internal purity directly related to keeping traditions and keeping away from unclean things. And so Jesus turns it around and actually teaches the crowd, actually being holy, being righteous, being pure internally is a matter of the heart, not a matter of washing your hands, um, not a matter of things you do externally. Like Dave preached last week, God cares more about the heart than about religious tradition. This springboards us into the story. So I just wanted to set that up for you because it's important to have that in the back of our minds as we look at this. So beginning in Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I'm just saying Sidon. I don't even know if that's the right. Yeah, one of those. (laughs) So it's all good. Gentile, these are Gentile cities. Uh, they were located on the Mediterranean coast. Currently, they, they, that would be classed as modern Lebanon. Um, mostly Greeks live there. And Jesus, it says Jesus withdrew there, maybe to get away from Jewish opposition, maybe to get away from the crowds. We don't know. Um, but it says he withdrew. Mark, in, in Mark's account, it actually says that Jesus went into a house hoping to escape notice. 
but he did not escape notice because in verse 22 we see a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. So in ancient times, um, this land was called Canaan. And throughout the Bible, it's mentioned over 150 times in the Bible that Canaanites were spoken of as quite a wicked and idolatrous people. It was, Canaan was the land that, that God was to give Israel when he rescued them from Egypt. And Matthew uses the title Canaanite so the reader would know her ancestry. Like it was, a lot, it was called Canaan a long time ago. Like I'm married to Sophie, she's born in Sweden. It'd be like me calling her a Viking, that type of thing. Sometimes I call her a Viking. No, not really. <laughs> She's not here, so she can't hear that. Um, so it was a reference to their, to their heritage, okay? Um, but Matthew wanted us to, to understand that. She came out crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She was crying out, Lord, son of David. So that's a sort of an unusual thing for her to be shouting out. The, the Lord, meaning one of authority, that's not so unusual. But the son of David was a direct reference to Jesus being the Jewish Messiah from the line of King David. The Messiah being prophet king who would liberate Israel and the, and the Jewish people and, and establish an eternal kingdom. She knew something about Jesus and she knew he could deliver her daughter from a demon. A demon possession is not something we come across very often here in Australia. It does happen, but it's not a common occurrence. Um, the devil, I think the devil's strategy in, in the West is just, for, just to get us all just to scoff a little bit at the spiritual world, to sort of see it as a Hollywood film thing. Um, but in, in many places in the world, demon possession is a, is a real thing. And um, I know in Africa and the East and stuff, you know, people believe in the spiritual world. Um, in the West, it's a little bit more... Unless science proves that it exists, we don't believe it, just in general. But, um, yeah, people think of that as more like a Hollywood thing. But in, other, in, in this situation, it did exist, and, and it says she was suffering terribly. So I can't imagine anything worse than having a child possessed by a demon. Like, it's pretty out there, and it's pretty horrific. But verse 23 says, Jesus did not answer a word. So this is where our framing of Jesus could get a little bit shaky because this woman is pleading for her daughter's healing and deliverance and the son of God who has famously healed and miraculously fed thousands of people, he's walked on water. I mean, people were literally just touching his clothes and they were healed and now nothing, silence. As Spurgeon preached, the word spoke not a word. And that was so unlike him. He who was so, always so ready with responses to the cry of grief had no response for her. So why was Jesus silent? Now, sometimes God may seem silent. The Psalms are full of times when the psalmist is saying, God, how long will you remain silent? And there's times in my life when I felt like God was silent. Maybe I just wasn't listening, but it felt like he was silent. But he's never silent without a reason, and this is an exception. See, something really good for us to remember, especially with, when we read the Gospels, is Jesus would always seek the intent of the heart before the content of the request. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. In our dealings with God, we can be so result-driven. Of course we are. When we pray to God, we're praying for things that matter to us, they're important to us, and they are important to God's. Don't hear me wrong. 
but he's more interested in our hearts. He's more interested in forming us to be more like Jesus, forming in us humility, forming in us holiness, teaching us how to love, be kind, bold, obedient. And it's the same with the disciples in this story. He was teaching them, and he was more concerned with the process than the product. How will the disciples respond? It says he was in a, home, in a house, so it's probably in the house with his disciples. She was crying out. So his disciples come to him and urged him. Actually, in some translations, it says begged him. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. You can just imagine, maybe the disciples took his silence to mean that Jesus would follow cultural tradition and not speak to her because she was a Gentile and she was a woman. So culturally, that wouldn't have been a good thing anyway. And when he remained silent, maybe the disciples were like, just send her away. They begged him. She was annoying them. She was making them feel uncomfortable. It said she was crying out. She keeps crying out after us. He stayed silent because he wanted to expose their hearts. He let it get uncomfortable. He exposed their own prejudice. So Jesus had limited time with his disciples. And we see it before this and we see it after this. He was spending time teaching them his identity teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them about purity and cleanliness and uncleanliness, truth and hypocrisy. He was teaching them about matters of the heart and they hadn't fully understood yet. So he remained silent and, they, and he begged them, just like the crowds, um, just like the thousands of, of, of people who Jesus ended up feeding, he said, he said just send them away, Jesus. He's saying, send this, send this woman away. And it's assumed they were saying to Jesus, just, just deliver her daughter. We know you can do it. Just Grant her request so she can just sort of leave us alone. And he answers his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Again, what? What is Jesus saying here? Because if you're, if you're a Christian here today, you know that Jesus was actually sent to all the world. He sent for us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's like... Not only could this come across as confusing for us Christians when he says we only came for the lost sheep, but it could also come across as discriminative, as offensive. I read another pastor commentator who wrote here that Jesus' statement here was a comment of ethnic exclusion and prejudice that calls to mind a similar refrain from a more modern time, whites only, that reverberated throughout the South not too long ago. That rather than Jesus being a part of the solution, he writes, to ethnic prejudice, according to this story, he was very much part of the problem. Again, extreme example. I did a lot of wide variety of reading on this. <laughs> so I, got, I read some um, pretty out there. But the problem is, like, the, by, by this commentator re reading it through his lens, he's missed the point. The Messiah was spoken of throughout the Old Testament as a shepherd who would gather his lost sheep. In Micah, it says, Micah chapter 5, it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. See, this sent only to the lost sheep was a direct reference to him being the Messiah and a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. That's one of the reasons Matthew includes in his genealogy from 
from Abraham to King David. If you ever tell someone to read, read the gospel and they don't know the Bible, just give them a heads up. The beginning of Matthew is just page, like quite a few pages of just genealogy. And you can sort of wonder why, but Matthew had this theme that he wanted to show that, that, that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. You know, it says, scholars say that conservatively, conservatively at least 456 Old Testament verses in some way point to Jesus. And Jesus, just on his time on earth, fulfilled 300 prophecies about the Messiah. Sadly, many of his own didn't recognise him and many opposed him, as we read about with the Pharisees. But this woman was embracing him fully. We pick it up, verse 25. She says, The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. She's desperate. She wasn't going to give up. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus seems to coldly answer this woman's pleas, again, doing something that we sort of think is unlike Jesus, referring to her and her daughter as dogs. What's going on here? I had trouble explaining this to Marley, because this was right before I sort of decided to focus on this passage, and I sort of thought, I took it as God just giving me a nudge, because out of all the stories Marley was reading. Um, so I started looking into it, but I, you could, I was stumbling and fumbling my way through you know, explaining to Marley, okay, well, uh, this comment can shake us if we don't get the context. But we need to remember, firstly, Jesus' choice of words, choice of language is, is an illustration. He wants it to be an illustration, okay, not an insult. It's an illustration. Also, the word for dog here did not refer to the word that they used referring to wild dogs roaming the streets, dangerous and unclean. There's actually a diminutive version of the word, which means like a small fluffy pet that dwells in the house. Not the insulting version. See, the, the other version, the Jews actually used as an insult on the Gentiles. They would actually call them dogs as an insult. Jesus didn't use that word. Still a dog, but an endearing dog. When I bought my dog, uh, Bonnie, um, I, it was just before So fell pregnant, actually, and I bought her, I bought her from Maxville. And um, I actually just pressed, like, transferred the money and bought her. And then about 15 minutes later, So came out with a pregnancy test and said, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm like, I just bought a dog. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was crazy timing. But I knew, I knew my dog would be with me every day at work. I was a, I was a carpenter and I was on a building site every day. She'd have to come to work with me every day. So I, I knew I had to train her well. Okay, so I was watching a lot of Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. If you know Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Anyway, um, I, was, I was watching him and reading books, and actually, so said to me, I probably did more, more training on, more reading up on how to train a dog than how to raise a kid, which is probably true. But I didn't have to bring my kids to work every day. That was my logic. Anyway, anyway, one of the biggest things um, the dog whisperer teaches us is that a, is that a dog must know its place in the pack. That it, there's a priority order. And a dog is most happiest and content when it knows its place in that priority order. One of the ways to do this, the reason I'm bringing this story up, is one of the ways to do this when you're teaching a dog is let it, it watch you eat first. Let it watch you have dinner first. Let it watch your kids have, eat first. And it knows its priority in the pack. This, sort of, was the illustration Jesus used here. It, wasn't a matter of, it was a matter of priority, not prejudice. The imagery first Jesus used was lost sheep, referencing him as the Messiah and his lost people, the people of Israel. 
Now the imagery is of dogs to understand that the children should be fed first. It wasn't an insult, it was an illustration. So the bread of deliverance, the bread of healing, the bread of salvation, Jesus himself, the very bread of life, was to be given first to Israel in the fulfilment of their prophesied Messiah. It's a key key part of God's plan of salvation. Paul knew this in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So why first to the Jew? As I said, God's plan of salvation from the beginning was for Israel to be God's chosen people. And he promised that from Abraham's descendants, all nations will be blessed through him. So he was fulfilling his promises. And out from Israel, a saviour will be born. The light, Jesus, the light of the world. I'm probably going to sing some hymns coming into Christmas about this. And he will bring salvation to all people. That's the context. It was a part of God's plan. It was a, it was, it was a part of his promises. That Israel would originally shine their light to the ends of the earth. All people would know God. It says in Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The plan was always for God's salvation to come to the whole world, but it began in Israel and it began with the Messiah. See, Jesus could have just healed this woman's daughter with a word and sent her on the way. But he wanted his disciples' hearts to be exposed there's some scholars say he used the word dogs, even though it was, a, it, was a, it was a pet dog. He still would have used that term dogs to highlight potentially what was already in, inside the disciples' hearts, to highlight, to expose their prejudice, because that would have been a word they'd used for Gentiles. But he also wanted the woman's understanding to be expanded, to be reframed, for her to know who he really is. He wasn't just a Jewish miracle worker. He was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the God of Israel. And Jesus honours her by telling her the truth and using an illustration she would understand. Now she seems to understand who he is better than most people in these couple of chapters. She doesn't walk away offended by Jesus' comment, like, how dare you call me a dog? She actually agrees with him. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, and she says, yes, it is, Lord. Actually, the true translation is actually, she says, that's true, Lord. She she's not disagreeing. She's saying, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She got it. Her logic was clear. She believed that even her, a Gentile, could still benefit from Israel's Messiah. And faith is a powerful thing when you're in agreement with God. She agreed. Jesus turned to her and said, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now this word woman here, the, the translation is this, it's not like woman. It sort of comes across in our language like woman. You call someone a woman, it's a bit like what? It was actually an endearing term. It was a term of affection and emotion. The, view, the word used here in the Greek is one of like woman, like intense like affection and emotion towards this person and says he was greatly moved. How great is your faith? And imagine her response. 
She would have been over the moon. In Mark's account, it says that she went home and found her daughter in bed and the evil spirit was gone. And I was thinking about her journey home because she, would, she journeyed there and then, and then obviously he said, let it be as you wish, and the daughter was healed. But she had no guarantee. She had to still walk home. And I was thinking about that, just putting myself in her shoes, thinking, you just had this conversation with Jesus. And you're walking every step. You're still having faith. You're over, overjoyed because you believe, but you still have to have faith that when you get home that she will be healed. And there's no New Testament Bible. There's no Christian church on the corner. She just met Jesus. She didn't have the context until Jesus gave her the time to put, her, put himself in context. She could actually go back through scriptures, the Jewish scripture, scriptures, and find out who this person is. He didn't dismiss her. He challenged her understanding. And her faith in him was commended as great. You know, only twice does Jesus say, how great is your faith? And it's her and a Roman centurion, two Gentiles. He was surprised at their faith. So what can we take away from this? What's in it for us? Not only did she have great faith, but she came in great humility. She knew she had no entitlements. She had no claim on God. She, she could make no demands. And her religion, pagan or not, would not save her, just like the Pharisees' rules and traditions wouldn't save them. She was relying solely on God's mercy through his son. See, the Bible makes it clear that we are all equal, that we have equal value, that we have equal worth, that we're made in the image of God. And it's something that as Christians, our lives, we should affirm that value of equality, 100%. The hard thing is the Bible also makes it clear that we're equally sinners, equally lost without God, equally in need of a saviour. And this in our culture is probably even more offensive. See, no one has dibs on God, no matter male or female, no matter the country you're from, no matter the colour of skin. It's only by grace. And before God, we were all dogs under the table. In fact, the Bible uses even stronger language. He says we were enemies. Like I'd rather be a dog than a sheep, to be honest, because I love dogs. <laughs> but I'd definitely rather be a dog than an enemy. In Colossians 1, 19 to 23, it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you and me, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Praise God. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Clean. Made pure. Not by washing your hands, not by fulfilling tradition, but by Christ's blood, it says. So this story is not about an angry single parent who gets one over Jesus in an argument and by freeing him from his prejudice gets deliverance for her daughter. 
when we reframe Jesus and we remove our own lens, we can see it through God's plan of salvation. It's actually a story of compassion and healing, of challenge and discipleship. It's a beautiful picture of the Jewish Messiah who is also saviour of all who believe. And I don't know where you are today with Jesus. Maybe you're not sure about the Christianity thing. Maybe you're in God's house and you don't feel like you're a child. Maybe you feel like you're under the table collecting scraps. But it's no coincidence that this story is sandwiched between two other stories of miraculous feeding with bread. And we can't let that go unnoticed. The first we, I mentioned in chapter 14 was Jesus fed thousands of people on Jewish territory with bread, with loaves of bread. But the one immediately after we heard Barb read out was on Gentile territory and he healed thousands of people and he fed them with bread. See, God wants you to know there's plenty of bread. He's not offering crumbs. He wants you at his table. I'll just close with this. When I was writing this message, I was listening to a worship playlist, trying to get in the mood, so to speak. And, you know, you're listening to songs and then you, you sort of, it's in your peripheral and then all of a sudden you hear what you're hearing. And these words stuck out to me with this song. And I was literally writing this, like, I was thinking, my mind was on this. And this was the, these were the lyrics. By your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near. Your enemy you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. That's the gospel. Once we were enemies, now seated at his table with his family. God wants you at his table. He wants you eating the loaves. He sent his son for that. Let me pray.